Now, I would like to share one of the most incredible memories I have with our church. For some parents listening in, you may never have heard this story before. It might involve some of your kids. Um, It was just hard to communicate this or the, the intensity of this experience over email. So here's the context. Lester, our youth director, had just left. And uh, this was before we hired on. And so guess who was the interim youth director? It was me. And so at the time, we had awesome youth leaders, just like we do now. Uh, They were Jordan and Daniel and Lily and the Matsuokas. They were awesome. And And so we decided to throw a retreat at the Matsuokas. And we asked Daniel to come and play worship. So I remember gathering with the leaders beforehand and we're just like, okay, guys, we want God to do something amazing, amazing. Because I think about it, this youth, the youth, like a great majority of youth will go off to college and then they'll fall away from the faith. But if in a retreat like this, God touches them on like a very deep level and they have this encounter with God, then just maybe they, the, the whole course of their lives will be set in a different direction and they will live God-fearing lives for the rest of their life. That was, that was the hope. And so we all prayed for this, okay? Like, God, you got to do something special. God, come through and do something special. And so, um, so we did the retreat and it was, it was great fun. And then Saturday night was coming around and I gave a message about encountering God. And, and then after the message, we had Donald play a, a worship song and I invited the youth to, to come forward and, and to kneel if, if they wanted to encounter God, if they wanted to receive Christ with all of their lives, you know? And so then Donald's playing this song and for the first song, nothing happened. <laughs> nothing happened. Um, like, okay. And then after one song, one kid gets up, goes to the middle of the room, kneels down, and is just prostrate before God. And then another kid follows. And then another, and then, and then pretty much the entire youth group went to the center of the room, knelt down, prostrate before God. And then, and then there were tears. And then they started to pray for each other. And then this was going on. And so, so and, and then they were just worshiping with all of their hearts. And you could just feel in the room there. You could just feel like the presence of God. It was, it was an amazing an amazing experience. I remember we were worshiping after some time and, and then, you know, because they're, they're kids and they need to go do something fun. So I, I just kind of like said, Hey, for all you who are like done worshiping, you can go to the other room and get snacks. And, and the youth wanted to stay and worship God. And they were just crying and worshiping and just pouring out their, it was incredible. Um, you know, I remember Donald, (laughs) 
So Donald was thinking, you know, it's just going to be a couple songs and then we close and then snacks. That's what he was prepared for. But then the worship just kept on going. So after like a couple hours went by, he's like, Pastor Andrew, I've been worshiping and singing for two hours. When is this going to stop? You know, um, it was, you guys, it was absolutely incredible. It was an absolutely incredible experience. Um, now, I, I got to say, as a pastor, this like this like changed things for me. I, I just kind of felt like, man, I love I love it when God does something like that, you know. And I do believe that what happened that night made and will make a huge difference in the lives of the youth, you know, because it wasn't just they were hearing about God's grace. It really was like they felt it. They felt it to the just to the bottom of their hearts. And so that's what we're talking about today. As we go through Nehemiah chapter eight, we're talking about our desperate, desperate need for revival. Revival. Now let's define it. Revival is what happens when God takes a community that has grown cold in their love for God and he brings new life and new joy to it so that they see God and fall in love with him again. I've talked to so many Christians and they, they, when they talk about being close, they, they, it's always like, in the past tense, like I used to be. Uh, a, a lot of Christians um, will say, yeah, I used to be so passionate for God, like in college. But then what happened? They got older, they had a family, there was more responsibilities and more distractions, and their love for God kind of went cold or lukewarm at best. And they'll say stuff like, I remember when I used to be so on fire for God, and maybe that's you. Now, listen, throughout history, many of God's people have felt the same way. And it it never feels good to feel like you've fallen short or you've grown cold. Um, No one ever wants to stay that way, but you kind of feel like you don't have it inside yourself to get out of it and fall in love with God again. So part of you is like, is there any hope? And the answer is, yes, there is hope. God does something beautiful that we cannot do by ourselves. And it is called revival. Revival is something we desperately need. And so that's what we're talking about today as we go into Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, Nehemiah is known for building the wall, right? And now in chapter 6, the wall has already been built. So you would think, end of story, no. What happens next is even more important than the building of the wall, because what good is a fixed wall if you have a broken spirit? What good is a fixed wall if you still have a lost identity? And these people know it. They've been working on the wall for 52 days, and in their hearts they know it's more than just a physical wall. Everything is leading up to this next moment. For 52 days, they've been lifting heavy stones, and inside they're wondering, who are we? What will we stand for? What's going to matter inside the confines of these walls? What will our community be like? They need vision. They need values. They need direction. You know what they need? They need the touch of God and a revival. So turn in your Bible to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. And I will tell you that the first place that they go, and rightly so, is God's word. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. 
And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people answered, Amen. Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabethai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites. Help the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. Okay. I want you to imagine the scene. Um, who, who took initiative? The people. The people took initiative. So they gathered as one man, and they told Ezra to bring the book. Bring the book of the law. All right. So first, the, the people took initi initiative. Secondly, there's a lot of them. How, how many? There are 42,000 plus. That's a lot of people. 32,000 all gathered into the same space. Now, in case you're wondering what 42,000 people look like, it looks like this. Uh, and and. Like right in stage front, there is a wooden stage with 14 men on it. I will not try to butcher their names again, but I do, I, I do know the pronunciation of the person in the middle. It's Ezra, Ezra the scribe, Ezra the teacher, Ezra the pastor. In the very middle is Ezra. Now, Ezra, you can imagine, takes out a sacred scroll, starts at the beginning, and the moment he does it, he takes out the sacred scroll, 42,000 people rise up to listen to him. And maybe he starts at the beginning. You can imagine him clearing his voice. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Now I want you to imagine looking out at this crowd of 42,000 people. And there are grandfathers and grandmothers 
who have left Persia to be there. You imagine they've been through it all, but the one thing they have never seen and need right now, as old as they are, they need revival. There are teenagers that are there. They have their whole lives ahead of them. What do they need most right now? They need to be touched by God in a way that will set the whole course of their lives on fire. They need revival. Young parents are there. You know, do you imagine all the bags around their eyes? They left their kids to come to this event. What do they need? They need the touch of God's grace through revival. The people desperately need this. Now you imagine all the faces all that they've been through. What did it take to get here? 70 years of deportation. They have come back to build. Now it's the start of a new nation, a new community. What are they going to stand for? How is this amazing community supposed to be amazing, supposed to reflect the light of God to the world? How are they supposed to do that? What do they need? They need revival. Now, you can imagine everyone is still and, and quiet, and they're clinging on to every word that comes from Ezra. Keep in mind, there, there's no microphone. There's no sound amplification. It is just one man's voice, which means that everyone needs to be absolutely still and quiet in order for 42,000 people to hear. How long did Ezra speak? The text says from early morning to midday. How long is that? That is six hours long. I am not kidding you. How, how long did grandpa stand to listen to the word of God? Six hours. That's how hungry grandpa was. This is amazing. Maybe what's even more amazing is how in the world did Ezra speak for six hours? Is Ezra like the James Earl Jones of the Jews? You know, did he have that kind of voice? The Jews were so hungry for God's word, so hungry that they stood for six hours listening to every word that came out of Ezra's mouth. Many of them have never heard the word of God before. This was the very first time. Now, right about, I imagine, hour number three or hour number four, an unexpected thing happens. No one was expecting this it just happened the people started to cry i'm sure it seemed like everyone started to cry now i can imagine how this happened i mean everyone was feeling it you know in their hearts they were feeling it and it just took one person to break the dam one person just to let it go who couldn't hold it anymore you know and you imagine with their head in their hand and they just broke down and wailed and you know what happens you're in a crowd one person loses it and it makes it so much easier for everyone just to let go as well and perhaps they were holding each other and they were wiping tears and there was just a deep deep sorrow and pain they were wailing and sobbing now why why are you wailing and sobbing what's going on well it's what ezra was reading now just imagine this bright clear voice in an arena of hushed silence he's reading the law of moses one by one 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and slavery to redeem a people for my own glory. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And, and Ezra is just going through one command after another command of God. And what do you think the Israelites were thinking? What, if you were there, what would you be feeling? This is it. They, they knew it. They knew it. They blew it. They knew it. They totally failed. God had a vision of such a beautiful people who were going to reflect his glory to the watching world. Just how beautiful and holy and, and awesome God is. But instead of representing God, they just totally blew it. They rebelled. They chased after other gods. They took advantage of the poor. They were dirty. They were ugly. They were awful. And they knew it. They knew it. And so that was their history. That was who they were. That is, that's why they got deported and punished in the first place. And so through their tears and they're just weeping and they're full of conviction and they were basically saying, God, we are so, so sorry. We had our chance and we blew it. We failed miserably. Now, <clears throat> that is what's going on. It is so intense. It is so intense. But let me just ask you, like, if you were Ezra or Nehemiah, how would you feel like this worship service is going? No one's having fun, but that's what you want as a pastor, right? No, I'm just kidding. That sounds bad. But as a pastor, if I'm preaching and people are in tears and wailing, this is a good thing, right? This is deep repentance, right? And so you expect Nehemiah and Ezra to acknowledge this is such a good, good thing, but that is not what they do at all. Look, let me read the next part. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away, went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And so Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites, like, they're like, when they see the people crying and wailing, they're like, no, 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 don't cry, don't cry. Three times they tell the people not to cry. Verse 9, this day is holy, do not mourn or weep. Verse 10, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 12, do not be grieved. Now, why do the leaders stop the people from crying? Why? I, I think the best explanation we have is in verse 10. In verse 10, Nehemiah says, Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, the strength that you need to be faithful to God for the rest of your life is not found in sadness, but in joy. 
or, or, or put it this way. You, you can focus on how much you have messed up and you can leave here feeling sad, but in the long run, nothing will change. And the purpose of the revival will not be accomplished. Or, or you can focus on the unfailing love of God, how he is for you and how he has brought you to this place to give you new life. And if you go with joy in God, you are going to find strength for a lifetime of faithfulness. You see, the joy of God is your strength. Let me give you a quick illustration. Um, It is my wife's birthday next week. Now, let's say, let's say I prepared this amazing dinner. Try to imagine that. And she says to me while she's, she takes the first bite and it's just, just like glorious, right? And she turns to me and she says, you know, you shouldn't have. Um, what would you think if I said, well, if I didn't do anything, you'd make me feel bad and I'd feel guilty. Uh, what would you think of that response? Like, how would she be feeling if I gave that response? Okay. But what if she turned to me and said, you shouldn't have. And I, I, and I said, well, honest, honestly, it is my absolute joy to do something like this for you. Now, what is she feeling? She, she wants to kiss me. She, she is, I can see my kids right now going, oh, gross. She is feeling honored. You're thinking, that's a good marriage. Yes, exactly. So it goes with covenantal relationships. If you go with the joy, you will have strength for the entire journey. A revival is not from sadness, but from joy. It is the joy of God that is your strength. Now, let's take a look at what the Israelites did next. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who returned from the captivity made booths, and lived in the booths, from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing, And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now, let me explain this feast. This feast is basically like taking the whole family to go camping in your backyard. Okay. And that's what the feast was like. So each family would build a tent or a shack, and then they would make a, maybe they would make a roof of, of tree branches. 
And so I, I just want you to take a look at what one of these booths would look like. And so the family would leave their house and go live in a tent with their family for about seven days. And during these seven days, they were supposed to be remembering something. They were supposed to remember when their ancestors were in the wilderness and they used to live in a tent like that. And they were passing through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And the future was, in a sense, very uncertain. But in another sense, there was a great certainty because they knew God was going to be there for them. And he had parted the Red Sea. There's nothing he wouldn't do for them. And so the only certainty they had was God and his word. And they had no house no Netflix, no video games, no YouTube, just God and his word and community. It was a very different kind of life where you're, you're stripped of your comforts and you just have to lean on invisible, eternal realities. The text says that they did this for the very first time, like ever since the days of Joshua, this is the first time they did this. Um, but you have scripture that also says that after Solomon built his temple, they celebrated this festival. So how is it possible that they never did this before? I, I think what the text is saying is basically they have never done it like this before, not this way where they really, really celebrated this festival with all of their hearts. I think that's what it means. They, they, they've never celebrated it like the way they did um, that time. Now, listen, they desperately needed this. They needed seven days to be stripped of comforts and to focus on God and his words and other people. And so that's how the chapter ends in chapter eight. Now, keep in mind, 140 years went by and their love for God had grown cold. So ever since they came back from Israel, they were depressed, they were discouraged, they were spiritually lost. They needed this. And look at what God did. This, this is a turning point in Israel's history. After this, they become the people of the book, the, the, the Torah, the law. It finally became the very heart and soul of this nation. They never fell away in quite the same way that they did before, after this turning point. I mean, they were far from perfect, and you'll see that in the final chapters of Nehemiah. But this was for sure a turning point for Israel. Okay. Now, where does this leave us? I mean, it's a great story, but what are we supposed to take away from this? First of all, some of us need personal revival. Some of us need personal revival. I know I do. So not long ago, I was talking to a friend and we both acknowledged that we haven't really been reading the scripture on a regular basis. We kind of both acknowledge that together. And so, so we made a decision. We're, we're going to go through the book of Jeremiah together, just a chapter a day. And so I'm reading the book of Jeremiah and my own personal devotions. And it's right about like chapter 10, where 
I just feel like, oh man, it's just so much doom and gloom and it's so depressing, you know? It, it was hard to read, um, but I kept on reading. And right about two weeks into it, something happened for me. By, by God's grace, there was an emotional penny that finally dropped for me. And I started to realize as I'm reading through Jeremiah, this is how God feels when his people, like when their love for him grows cold and they start chasing after other things. This is what it, it feels like from God's perspective. And, you know, it's, it's how I would feel if, if Raina had other lovers, you know, um, and suddenly it occurred to me, this is how God feels about me when even during the pandemic, my, my love for him is just kind of growing a little bit stale. And so after I'm reading the book of Jeremiah, it sort of turned into a prayer. And the, the prayer goes like this, like, God, I've, I've loved you in my 20s and 30s. And now as I'm looking at the next half of life, oh, God, I don't want to love you less. I want to love you more. I don't want my best days of loving God to be behind me. I want my best days of loving God to be ahead of me. You know, I don't want to be like the Israelites who lost their passion for God. And I don't want to be like, <clears throat> I was young and I was on fire, but then I got older and I flamed out. And so that's just been my prayer of, as I've been reading his word. Oh God, let me love you more not less as I grow older. Some of us need personal renewal. And let me just encourage you. It takes God to love God. In other words, even to love God is an act of God. So we're not supposed to like force ourselves to try to fall in love with God. We can't do that. But what we can do is we can ask and we can wait. So I would just invite you to join me in asking God to revive you and to pick a book of the Bible and read a chapter every day and just wait on God in prayer. Uh, for some of us, we remember how on fire we were for God when we were young. Can you imagine loving God more in the second half of life than you ever did in the first you know, some of, some of us are like, man, I love God so much. I was all, so on fire in college. Great. Can you imagine loving God more in the future than you did in the past? It is possible. God can do it. You know what it's called? It's called revival. <laughs> it's called revival. Now, that's personal revival. What about revival for the entire community? What about revival for the entire church? Well, the Jews had religious festivals like the Feast of Tabernacles. What do we have? Well, not the Feast of Tabernacles, but you know, we do have Advent. It's right around the corner. So families, in preparation for the season, um, we want to encourage you to, to buy the Advent candles that Denny talked about. But um, as you buy them, pray that your family and that our church will experience revival during the Advent season, that we are going to fall in love with God with a passion brighter than it ever was in the past, if you can imagine. 
New Year's is just around the corner. Lent, just around the corner. More possibilities. And what, what if we did like what the Jews did? You know, like they, they did the Feast of Tabernacles like they never did it before. Almost like it was the first time. What if we did Advent and New Year's and Lent like we have never done it before? What do you think would happen if during these seasons we prayed for God to revive our church? What if we prayed for God to touch us in a way so deep that we will never be the same again? Now, when I was called to our church, this was my first calling, like to bring revival to our church. And and personally, I have eight more months at CLC. This is my prayer for CLC. God, bring revival to our church. Touch us in a way where we will never be the same. Now, if we all prayed that prayer, what do you think might happen? Keep in mind, we have something that the Jews did not have. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. And through his death, we have forgiveness and resurrection power living inside us. Church, let's pray that God would bring revival to our church. Because we need it. We need it so badly. Here in the Bay Area, so many of us have grown cold in our love for God. But life is so short and God's glory is so great and God is so beautiful. So Lord, we pray, please bring revival to our church because we desperately, desperately need your touch. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.